internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a build of God and reach the side of the ocean floor. Returning guest, one of the crowd favorites ever, all-time favorites. Actually, I think maybe my most popular guest ever. I have to double-check the numbers. Conan Esquire returns for season two here on the Astro Flight Simulation. Uh, Conan, thanks for coming back, man. I'm really excited to sit down with you again. Hey, my pleasure. I'm happy to hear that the first episode we cut was well-received. Uh, it was a lot of fun for us to talk. I think it was a really good conversation. And at that time, I told you I'd be happy to come back whenever I had like something else to say. Um, so I'm glad to be back and talking about Conan the Barbarian today. Yeah, man, we are talking about your issue or excuse me, your um, essay, Conan the Culture Hero, uh, an article in Man's World issue 10. This is part three of my sort of uh, mini series or sub series that I do on the show called Man's World Writers. And I'm super stoked to have you. Uh, you're, of course, um, I'd love to, to over the years have you be a recurring guest. And it's absolutely proper that you were here to talk Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. And now we're here to talk Conan. Uh, I don't even think we can get I felt like we we actually covered everything we wanted to talk about last time. Uh, we were pretty comprehensive uh, comparing and comp contrasting the two series. I don't even think we're going to be able to cover everything with Conan today and Robert E. Howard um, so I, I plan on talking about Robert E. Howard more in the future. Uh, for today, we will focus on your essay only, and then maybe there'll be uh, there'll be much more to talk about in the near future. You're a big Robert E. Howard fan. Obviously, that's where you get your name. But um, if I can set up or characterize this essay, I'd like you to elaborate on it. I know you told me you have some content to talk about that wasn't even in the essay. So I'm excited to hear what that is. But if I may, Actually, no, before I do that, why don't you promote you? You had a book come out since we last talked. The, the of course, now I'm going to get them mixed up. There's Flowers of the Moon and the Turquoise, Turquoise Serpent. I think the Turquoise Serpent was released as the second book, right? You've, you've got them backwards. Flowers of the Moon is the second book in my ongoing pulp inspired fantasy series, Ashes of the Urn. So, yeah, Flowers of the Moon by Alexander Palacio. It's available on Amazon and it's been pretty well received so far. I'm happy with it. I'm currently working on getting the third book written and published. That's hopefully coming late summer, uh, early fall. That's kind of the goal right now. But depending on life circumstances, that maybe have to be pushed until fall, fall, fall proper. Um, but definitely, definitely, it'll be out this year. So very excited for that. It's not, it's not true. Uh, you know, I can't write Robert Howard. I can't write Robert Howard's stories. I think other people have tried to do that. And that's part of what we'll cover today is the prevalence of Conan clones, right? Clonans, they call them, um, and other pastiches that draw heavily from the Conan style and formula and, and character model. Um, and I think that's a big point and an important point, but it's not what I want to do. Uh, so there is some Conan and Robert Howard DNA in what I'm writing, but there's also a lot of Jack Vance, a lot of Gene Wolfe, um, a lot of some other author authors that I 
look up to and admire a lot that I think sets my stuff. You know, sometimes I get a review that says, eh, this, you know, this is not the Conan clone that I was looking for. Um, and I say, well, you know, you got to take that review like in a stride because that's not what I was trying to write. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I do. It's available on Amazon. Like I said, the Turquoise Serpent and uh, Flowers of the Moon is the second Alexander Palacio. All right. Well, I have both of those books around here somewhere, but if you could see my office. Oh, here's Flowers of the Moon right here. Yeah. This is audio only, but I can assure you guys these are beautiful covers, beautiful books, and uh, you have to pick up a copy for yourself. Um, and if you follow Conan on Twitter, you will see lots of talk of his books and positive reviews. Now, Conan of I have, and I have talked a lot, and his content reflects this. He's uh, one of the most serious people who talks about fantasy literature that you you can find anywhere on the internet. And this article, as far as I can tell, I think I'm trying to I tried to figure out a way to uh, summarize what you're trying to say. And I think what you're trying to say is that you believe Robert E. Howard deserves to be in the annals of the greatest literature and writers, along with people like Edgar Allan Poe and um, H.P. Lovecraft, among others. But um, guys like them were sort of elevated to the status of the great legends. And you think Robert E. Howard should be thought about in that way. And you also make the argument that it's not throwaway pulp. It's very relevant to our world today, and we can mine it greatly for insight and maybe um, metaphorical, deeper understanding. Uh, use the, use it as a metaphor for deeper understanding into uh, not only our plight in the digital world, but also uh, what we might be able to do to fix some of the problems, overcome some of the problems, or address some of the issues that we see. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. Obviously, you know, as a lawyer, I'm I'm instantly thinking of all the ways that I'd caveat that. But I totally I think it's a fair statement of the position. Um, and we can get into kind of what that what that really means in terms of the argument that I'm making and some of the objections that people have made to it um, in, you know, the wake of that article being published, which I think we're mostly like good and in good faith. And I agree with a lot of them. It's hard to get everything that you really want to say into a 2000 word essay. There's always just going to be stuff that you have to leave out or, um, you know, hypothetical counter arguments that you can't address, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the essay. And I definitely agree that Howard is an important figure in American letters. Um, uh, and the, the reason that this article was written in the first place is a debate that was going around on Twitter for a while uh, sparked by a guy who commented something to the effect that he understood why he understood why Lovecraft remained important and remained relevant. The philosophical issues that underpin a lot of the thematic direction of Lovecraft's work are obviously relevant today, but he doesn't understand why Howard is kind of held up to be an equal to Lovecraft. Right. In this guy's view, Lovecraft is, is by far the the more important modern writer is this, to, uh, to the modern this a, day. A friend of yours? Or are you talking about a critic? The, this was just not a critic, just some guy. Like really okay. just some guy. But but you know, the post that he made was inflammatory. So it kind of sparked a lot of debate among a lot of people that I talked to, a lot of people whose opinions I think are 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 probably really the cutting edge of 
pulp criticism at this point. For, for sure. You you are out front. I mean, I can't think of anyone, especially with all the wokeness that's taking over fantasy and, and role playing and stuff. I, I think I think you're like the leading person in that. It's arguably in in outside of academia. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of what I think there's a little bit of there's a little bit of caveat that comes into this because, you know, there, there are a fair few of these pulp authors that have had a sort of academic spark of interest now that they've been around for a hundred years. And that's what we're talking about here. I mean, Howard starts publishing these Conan stories pretty much fully a hundred years ago now, which is a long time. And um, it's definitely a long time when you think about pulp in the context that it was originally published in, which was not, you know, not intended to be um, some kind of lasting medium. I mean, that's the very essence of pulp is that it's printed on this cheap, uh, recycled paper and sold in newsstands. It's it's meant to be consumed. It's meant to move quickly, right? There, you hear all these like legendary stories from the pulp golden age up to even Michael Moorcock publishing in the 70s, where he's ripping out these Elric books over the course of a weekend partying and writing, you know, a 60, 50, 40,000 word Elric novel, just banging them out and publishing them. And so there's this, you know, real idea that pulp is kind of meant to be a consumable and discardable. But at the same time, you have these authors who are working in the medium like Lovecraft, like Howard, like to lesser extent, but not less meritorious extent, Clark Ashton Smith, um, some of the other greats like Sax Romer, who were not writing in the, the kind of clearly science fiction and fantasy area of pulp, you know, the, the kind of pulp that developed into and influenced the modern day iteration of the of those genres, you know, I mean, pulp was just pulp, right? You have science fiction stories, you have fantasy stories, you have detective stories, you have uh, crime stories, you have all these different kind of subgenres, not even subgenres at that part. It's just all pulp. Uh, and now, of course, that's kind of stultified and, and differentiated into, you know, what we think of as these genres that people argue about the validity of. But whatever, there there is some phenomenon there that Lovecraft and Howard had a tremendous amount of influence over. And I think that a lot of academics have gone back and sort of brought Lovecraft or started the work of bringing Lovecraft, Ashton Smith, some of the early weird writers like M.R. James, um, Algernon Blackwood into academia and giving them some, some due for the level that they were really writing at. Uh, and I think that's been done less for Howard. And I think uh, it's almost because... Conan is is such a prevalent figure in culture that people look past it, right? They want to they want to see something more obscure to be able to make their name on it and say, "Hey, this is uh you know, this is this overlooked gem." Whereas I don't think you can really say Conan is overlooked by the culture. Like he's pretty much been I mean there was a there was certainly a period of a decade or two after Howard's death before Else Brogda Camp and Lynn Carter got their hands on the rights to the Conan the Conan novels in the Howard Estate and started republishing a lot of those stories, uh, editing them. I vote, if I can them. jump jump in, um, I I wanted to ask this question anyway. Uh, are those the two main guys who continued the series, 
the Conan series and the character of Conan after him? Or was it like a lot of people jumping in? Um, because I see El Sprague de Camp's name everywhere and Lynn Carter. Yeah. Um, they, I, were the two, they were the two primary figures. Yeah. Okay. Other people were involved. Um, but most importantly, El Sprague de Camp was an important editorial figure in science fiction and pulp kind of during the 50s through this like 70s and 80s, I think was probably his real heyday yeah and controversially now he came into ownership of the conan rights and he not only republished with his edits the howard stories um which is you know making the edits that he did is now something of a little controversy but of course continued writing conan stories and conan novels and expanding that to a great degree with his kind of like regular partner in crime, Lynn Carter, who those two are kind of like their own little historical figure duo who I have a lot of like complicated feelings, but ultimately a lot of affection for. Um, and I think Lynn Carter is by far the more lovable of the two. Elsprog the camp is kind of like a pretty shady business guy in a lot of respects, but at the same time, you probably do owe yeah. the prevalence of Conan you, yes. today to him. That's what I was going to say. Okay, I want to say something real quick. I started reading books on my own, really like actual books, when I was 10. And I remember the first book I ever read was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I was 10 years old. And the second book I ever read was Conan the Sumerian. It was the one with the, like the ape beast with the red cape jumping at him. You know that one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and that's I want to say Thack. But it's the eight beast of uh, the the priest Nabonidus from Rogues in the House. That's I the assume in the house story. he's the inspiration for at least partial inspiration for the character that Conan fights in the in the Room of Mirrors, the wizard who turns into a, a beast with a red cape in the Conan the Destroyer movie. I mm -hmm. can't remember if he has the same name or not. But the point is, is that. So I read that book and then I read a bunch of Conan books until I was about 12. It's like all I read. And then I got into like TSR and Dragonlance. And then maybe when I was like 17, I started reading like quote unquote real literature. And I didn't go back to Conan until basically I met you on online. I It made me want to go back and reread. And here's the funny thing. I didn't realize when I was a little kid that these were like short stories written by different people. I didn't know any of this. I just read them straight through like they were a novel. And I was so little, like, I don't think I even like put two and two together that they were yeah. all these different episodic stories. And I thought all of those books in like my whole life, because I never looked at them again until I met you literally like 30 years after reading them. I watched the movie and stuff, but and read the comics. I, I went back and I'm like, oh, my God, I thought Robert E. Howard wrote all of these books and I thought they were all novels. Like, right. so now I've been going back over and reading them and uh, I can't believe the disparity. Right. Which is not to say that Sprague de Camp is bad and these other guys are bad, but it's like the the Howard ones are uh, totally set apart and it's. <laughs> to use a word uh a, it's like breathtaking to read uh, the howard conan stories as an adult and 
and see how much he influenced the entire genre of fantasy because Tolkien gets all the credit and obviously Tolkien deserves the lion's share of the credit. But to see the things that Howard was doing in these short stories back then, it's like he's one of the most influential writers of all time. You just have to say that. And the Venn diagram of pulp and fantasy has a lot of overlap of, of, you know, the fantasy genre as a whole encompasses Mm -hmm. everything from Tolkien, which I think you have to consider high literature and, um, you know, C.S. Lewis, which maybe is one tier below Tolkien and uh, just pure throwaway pulp. And I think Howard's influence clearly goes far beyond just the pulp stuff. I mean, clearly. And I just and I, and I mean, based on the themes in the stories and the things that take place in the stories and how much you can see that repeated over and over and over again in the future. Uh, he has to be put next to Tolkien. I don't think his prose is as good as Tolkien. I don't think he's necessarily as creative as Tolkien. But in terms of influence and scope of vision, I think he's on the same level. Yeah, and that's that's more or less the argument that I make in the essay, which is that I, I don't go into, I don't think I go into Tolkien much, if at all, in the essay or how or uh, Lovecraft for that matter, because you know I didn't want to I didn't want to make the essay like this big argument or, or a part of some argument that you know Howard is better than Lovecraft or anything like that. Yeah, I, I don't Lovecraft. I don't even think you need to. I, right, and in fact, I think the only the only real reason that people compare Howard and Lovecraft in the first place is that they were close friends and correspondents. Yes, that deserves its own episode. And two, that they are kind of the two leading names that people still talk about and read and think about when it comes to the weird tales pulp scene from the 30s, right? People, you know, if you're a specialist or if you're really into it, you know who Clark Ashton Smith is. You know who Seabury Quinn is. You know who um, C.L. Moore is. And those are all great writers. But the normal guy, you know, the guy on the street probably knows Lovecraft. And he would know Robert Howard if you said he wrote the Conan stories. Um, but that's that's like, so that's why people compare them. You know, they they were writing for the same magazine and they were friends. It's not because they were writing similar things or or writing you know, stories that obviously bear a comparison because they're just really, I mean, Howard is writing, you know, um, horror, cosmic horror stories that are grounded in the real locations of, of New England that are structured more like detective stories. Whereas once in a while, you do get a Conan story structured like a detective story. Like, uh, for example, the early one, The God and the Bull, is structured very much like a detective story, but that's not really what he's doing. It's a, it's, you know, a, a more or less a fantasy world with a, with an action hero, um, which is really not what Lovecraft is doing. So, you know, the reason people compare them is not because they were writing similar things that, that requires a comparison on that level. You're, you're saying Lovecraft also has the element of a detective story at times, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, but 
so yeah, I, I don't want to try to like throw Lovecraft. I, all I'm doing is writing a defense of Howard's place in sort of the American literary pantheon that I think is still underexplored and undervalued because what it all comes down to ultimately for me is that everybody knows who Conan the Barbarian is. You know what I mean? That you can say that to people and they have an image in their head, whether that image is really correct to Howard's vision of Conan or has been flattened out by later imitators and pastiches and clones into this idea of like a dumb barbarian caveman who lives in like the distant past is kind of beside the point to me. Um, the fact is that Howard propelled the character into this cultural mythos layer where people know him purely by growing up in the U.S., purely through cultural osmosis um, that has nothing to do with ever having read Howard or even seen the Schwarzenegger movie or read the Marvel comics. Maybe they did. Maybe they like the idea that gets put in their head of Conan just by growing up. And then they go look those things up and kind of solidify it and understand what it is or have a preference as to which Conan or which version of Conan. But I think that's really indicative. Well, sorry to jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I know you didn't admit this on purpose, but you can't. You'd I, I would be remiss if we didn't also mention the comics. The comics had a massive cultural yeah. impact. Oh yeah. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, I was like one of the only people. I had like one friend who read books besides me, but everybody read comic books, and the Conan comics were like one of the most popular comics that everybody read. Yeah, they had. I mean, they had several runs. Mar Marvel did them originally. Um. I think they started in the early 70s with Roy Thomas writing them. And they had some some initial comics with Barry Windsor Smith doing the art for, you know, for like 30, 30 books or something like that. And Barry Windsor Smith ends up being like one of the great comic artists of all time, does beautiful work, kind of graduates from comics in a way and does fine artwork. Uh, I love his his early Conan stuff. It's some it's like a really it shows you a, a, a just another side of Conan that you don't often see where he's like more contemplative or he's not always in a battle pose. Uh, Conan art is kind of its whole other topic and I something I find really interesting. But then it moves from Barry Windsor Smith to I think John Buscema, who is one of the big other like, you know, artist emeritus figures for for Marvel Comics in that era. And his, his stuff is great too. Like I, you know, I, it's hard to pick between them, but those guys really, really help shape the kind of ideas of Conan and, and immortalize him in a, in the cultural consciousness. Yeah. I, uh, I'm looking these up now as you're saying their names and this guy, uh, Barry Windsor Smith is absolutely remember him. He's like the trademark Conan comic guy. He's the guy I was reading. I just mm -hmm. never knew his name before. And what was the other guy's name? I think it was John Buscema. I think there's two Buscemas, but I'm not a big comics guy. I really only know <laughs> comics uh, to the extent that I've looked into it out of a Conan interest. Well, yeah, I mean, Barry Windsor Smith, though, is definitely the iconic guy that uh, that if you're familiar with the Conan comics, it's probably his. This John Buscema's art looks better, actually. I hate to do this to the listener, so maybe I'll use the the the. Uh, icon for t for this episode uh, I'll I'll make it one of these comic guys it's John Buscema's art's even better 
They're but, both uh, uh, kind of legendary comic artists. Yeah, he um, looks like he did. He did the ep the issue of the Black Colossus, which we're going to talk about. So let's. I'm sorry, I don't mean to um, sort of uh, manhandle your your point here, but um, for the sake of time, let's just skip right over now to the content here, because uh, you bring up a lot of different uh, s short stories in this in this essay, although. I've thought about your essay a lot and I've read a lot of Conan stories because, because see, you changed my whole perspective on Conan with this essay because uh, I've been working a lot, you know, listeners of this podcast will know reading nonfiction, a lot of philosophy and, and, you know, critical theory and stuff like that. And I kind of started reading short stories as my like way to relax. And I was basically reading Lovecraft and Howard. And it was immediately obvious to me reading Lovecraft. I was like, oh, all of this is like has this like kind of overt applicability to our technological era. And we can use these stories to to talk about our relationship in America now in 2023 to technology and how it's having an effect on the human psyche and the human race. Uh, mm -hmm. Conan felt to me like pure escapism until I read your essay. And it like totally opened up a whole new perspective for me on reading these stories that it is also equally as applicable. Now, I don't want to get into a debate about Howard's prose or originality. And I mean his internal originality, like uh, because he gets accused of like churning out the same story over and over again. He basically gets accused yeah. of us using like a boilerplate uh, plot and just repeating it. Which certainly is there to an extent. Um, I wouldn't say you can reduce his work just to that and sort of throw it out, but it's definitely a criticism that that ha bears out in his writing. And also just like on a line by line prose, I prefer. I mean, Tolkien obviously is Tolkien. I don't even need to make a defense for him, but I also prefer uh, Lovecraft to Howard. Um, but in terms of like themes and and the plot of his stories i think he's uh as relevant to our modern situation now as lovecraft is and as uh uh tolkien is it's very very you know passé at this point to compare tolkien to world war 2 mm -hmm. but i think you can easily compare conan and i never saw it until i read your essay yeah, definitely. Uh, to, and I agree. I think it's useful to kind of limit the scope of the conversation, you know, to avoid getting into discussions of his particular prose style or or the structure, you know, the specific plots of his story or anything. But in the essay, I'm essentially arguing that the reason that he was able to propel Conan into this cultural mythological figure as kind of like Robin Hood or King Arthur, where he just exists and you recognize him even when the name is different, when the, you know, when it's Thongor the Barbarian or when it's Brack the Barbarian or whatever it is, whoever's, whichever clone you're reading, you always know when it's a Conan thing, right? And the reason he was able to do that is because he had this almost prophetic vision and understanding of his theme, which is this inherent eternal conflict between civilization and barbarism yes that says it perfectly 
Sorry. Which I think he saw playing out like one arc of that cycle playing out. So to set us, to give us the setting, Conan, everybody gets the setting of Conan wrong. They like, they often think that he's a barbarian in a barbaric world. And that is sort of true, but it's not a low world. It's not a caveman world. It's in fact, a very highly civilized world, right? There's Aquilonia, there's Asheron, there's uh, Zamoria, there's all uh, Shem, there's all these great civilizations that exist. And Conan is from the outskirts. He's from Sumeria, the, the wastelands in the, in the north where he is rare because he is a barbarian and his travels bring him into contact with like all these corrupt, overdeveloped, moribund, effete, civilized lands where that inherent conflict between barbarism and civilization plays out. And the Conan figure sort of shows us the nature of that conflict and how we, the reader with Conan as our vehicle are able to understand it and maybe to navigate it. And you know how, like there's um, there, well, let me go into this later, but so that's that's the setting that we're in, and I think you can take that setting and apply it to to today really well. And I think Howard knew exactly what he was doing when he was writing that because you can see it in his letters, you can see it in his other stories. He's obsessed with this theme, right? He he's constantly observing the way that over civilization stifles uh, virtue, stifles vitality, stifles. Um, you know, these, these things that are thrilling about life and allow somebody to lead a life that, that is in their grasp, that is something that they're electing for themselves. And um, he does that by showing you, and this is what I think is probably my big contribution to this piece. I mean, people have, people have obviously remarked on the, the conflict between civilization and barbarism before. But I think what people leave out in analyzing Hyboria, or the Hyborian age that Conan takes place in, is the cult aspect. Obviously, you know, the, the gods of Hyboria, Mithra, Set, um, Durketo, all that stuff, they make it into the Conan games. They make it into the movies. That's there. Thulsa Doom is a cult leader in the movie. But but people still, I think, don't read between the lines to recognize that Conan is taking place in a world of cults. The cult is the infrastructure of the Hyborian age, right? You have kings who are losing to powerful cults. You have a hundred different cults taking existing with a city. You have cults destroying cities. You have sacrificial victims who could have not come from anything but a robust cult organization, right? With people who are uh, providing food for the cults, providing security for the cults, providing you know financial services, scouting victims, convincing victims to join the cults, and you know what I mean. Like there's these are not like lone actors. There's a whole. This is deeply embedded in Hyborian society. And they're usually run by a wizard and right. they're usually threatening an empire or a kingdom. And the interesting thing is, is very often Conan is called in to help win a war 
because the civilized you know empire or kingdom is unable to do it so they need to bring this like untrained sort of war uh, uh i mean he's highly experienced right but he's not he wasn't brought up in the court and trained in the ways of war he's a much more uh intuitive fighter who learned at, you know out on the step and so he's an uncivilized bar barbarian who plays by his own rules and when they can't when civilization can't resist the uh the pull of these dark forces and they're being overwhelmed by them they have to bring this wild man from outside uh, an outsider to come in and save them uh very often yeah because he's not he, he's not compromised in the way that let's say if you're the king and half of your half of your guards are either in the cult themselves or have family in the cult or have friends in the cult you you start to lose effectiveness right like a guard is not going to be motivated he has dual loyalties at that point he has personal connections that are involved in this cult and so he's not going to participate in like stamping it out with the level of uh you know disgust and prejudice that conan is going to stamp it out with and that's i think uh you you know i'm in the essay i'm making this comparison the whole time right like how 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 do you I think that when you look at the cults in Hyboria, they seem exotic to you because you don't live in Hyboria. But the reality is that you do live in Hyboria and that if you lived in the Conan Hyboria, those cults would seem very mundane in a way. It's just like what's happening around you, what's done, how you negotiate your path through civilized society all the time. You're like, oh, you know, the, the cults of so-and-so is going to be sacrificing people. Um, you hear about it, something happens, but... It doesn't necessarily affect you. You may even be like making money, selling them goods and services, that kind of thing. And it's it's exactly the same here. You hear about like the number of people that are being killed by uh, the, the MAID program in Canada now. You're like, they're just sacrificing these people. You know what right. I mean? Or or the the comparison that I like the most is, you know, obviously the whole trans movement is is not, it turns out, all that new, right? Because- we have historical records from ancient Syria where a king converts to Christianity in this case and stamps out a cult of a local fertility goddess who, whose worship involves men castrating themselves and living as women and performing the duties of, of temple maidens, right? That's happening in ancient Syria 2,000 years ago. And the king, I think, converts and says, uh, yeah, anybody who does that, I'm going to cut off both their hands. And that more or less stops. But that goddess in question goes by a couple names, one of which is Atargatis, also known as Derketo. And Derketo is one of the named gods in a couple of the original Howard Conan stories. I think there's a quote in I, I it's I know they call it something else now but when I grew up it was called Zuthal of the Dusk and she has this whole uh, this like whole villainous lady who explains all these like you know abusive SM BDSM sexual practices that she was put through to become an initiate of the cult of Durketto and so it's like you see him making these really incredibly on the nose 
references to real existing historical deities that more or less line up with their actual historical initiatic practices. And you have to think like, there's no, this not accidental. You know what I mean? There's too many instances of this. For example, there's another instance in Red Nails, and this is a, another subject, um, but in Red Nails, the setting is Aztec. It's like pure Mesoamerican. He's in a Mesoamerican inspired city talking about how, hey, I recognize what these people look like from when I was in uh, the Hyborian version of Afghanistan across the ocean, right? So he's there's this fascinating hint at transoceanic ancient contact, whether that's, you know, Atlantis, which also exists, of course, in the Conan stories, um, or just transoceanic travel. Either way, Howard knows what he's doing. These theories are all floating around at the time. He's not. Yeah, it's he there's read. No myth. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say there's no there's no like accidental reference that's taking place there. He he's doing that on purpose and he's telling you something. He's he's stitching Hyboria to our current modern day world. Yeah, and he does a fantastic job. He does such a subtly good job that I never even saw it until you brought it up. It's so obvious now. Uh, yeah, he read uh, the Theosophists and he read Nietzsche. And, you know, the Nietzschean themes that are in his work are overt. He talks about them in his letters. Uh, he he laments the, you know, end of the Wild West. And he was in Texas. He's from Texas. And I think there's a quote. This is really excellent essay that me and you uh, shared that everyone needs to check out. It's called The Dark Virtues of Robert E. Howard. And uh, he's pretty pessimistic guy. He did end up committing suicide, if for those who don't know. And he talks about, uh, you know, the 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 dying of the old west and the dying of that type of man, a t type of man who existed and had to exist to to tame the wild west and things like that. And Nietzsche talks about uh, Hyperborea, and he he talks about the blonde beasts and the men who existed in earlier times, the, the founding of civilization, really. Who were these barbarians who had to fight the, the forces of na uh, nature and fight the forces of each other in order to <coughs> establish civilization? Mm -hmm. And these are the people that Howard, this is who Conan is. He's trying to evoke and, and sort of like um, revive that type of person and make him real and make him like a living, breathing character for the reader. And also the stuff you're saying, I mean, I don't know if you were conscientiously saying this, but I'm sure you must know that Hyperborea was spoken about by Madame Blavatsky and the other theosophists a lot. And they had this whole theory of Atlantis and it involved Atlantis uh, seeding the population of the world. So Howard's um, entire like, like back the backstory of the world that he's developing is modeled pretty much directly on that. I mean, he, he, it, the name, I thought the name, I remembered the name of the world he lived in as Hyperborea until I started reading him again. And I realized he just had a slight play on that. Well, yeah. The, so the, the Hyborean age is the age of the world that Conan takes place in, but there is also like a region in that, world at that time called Hyperborea, which is in the north next to Asgardia, I think. So right. I see Asgard. Like, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. And and you might be interested in this. I think at one point uh Howard 
specifically describes Sumerians and Conan as dolicocephalic. Like he uses the word dolicocephalic, which is like such a um such a cue, such a keyword for that whole that whole era, like the the late 1800s, early 1900s um ideas of alternate history and race science that were being explored i don't mean race science necessarily in a you know specifically eugenics type of way just in terms of classification um theories about you know the Aryan expansion that kind of thing i think in fact the the famous intro to one of the conan stories where he talks about how you know no o prince that in the years describing the hyborian age he says in the years between when atlantis when the sea drank Atlantis the ocean, yeah, the oceans like drank Atlantis. Yeah, and the rise of the sons of Arius, right? Ah. So he's he's specifically saying the Hyborian Age is what happens between Atlantis falling and the Aryan expansion. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. okay, okay. I mean, those are the two tags that he uses. You know, that that has to be significant. <laughs> yeah, uh, if I can interject again. There are there's this story. I don't even know the whole story, but there's this story that people say that Middle Earth and and Tolkien is a history book. It's the history of the Earth, uh, the history of humanity. And clearly, Howard's doing the same thing. He's trying to make this like a history book. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think in a way, I mean, I've I see those jokes go by on Twitter, of course, and I I've made a thread at one time that was trying to square the middle earth timeline of events with the hyborian age timeline of events to argue that they were taking place you know they take place in the same factual historical universe um and i don't know how successful i was on that i got pretty close but i think what you can say is that they are probably the two most culturally accepted and widely known artifacts of this whole huge scene of um, alternate historical theories, uh, anthropological movement theories, race science theories that exist today, right? Like that's all stamped out. Nobody talks about uh, George von Liebenfeld's theozoology stuff. People, you know, new age people still kind of pay, give hat tips to the theosophists, but it's not, it's not a commonly discussed thing outside of our kind of sphere of Twitter. Um, or, you know, even any kind of non-out-of-Africa-based anthropological theory, even if it doesn't connect to the, the Atlantean hyperborean woo-woo stuff, it's just not it's just not discussed. Like, nobody considers the science is settled, so to speak. But when you read Conan, when you read How, or I'm sorry, um, Tolkien, you are kind of getting the, the radiation from, from those ideas by understanding these like concepts of Atlantis and Hyperborea and stuff like that. And I think the, a lot of the kind of like ideal of our own noble savage, right? Like that noble savage idea when it's applied to um, the West, like what is the Western savage? It's Conan. Uh, So yeah. And I think that the way that Howard does that is really important because he's, He's he's transplanting these ideas of how an antediluvian ancient high civilization that's been forgotten, how it why it is forgotten, right? Why it collapses, why it, it becomes so sick, so morbid, so stagnant 
that it can be toppled by a relatively small, even one man, right? Like Conan essentially, I mean, he has help, but it's his will. It's his singular will that overthrows Aquilonia and claims that throne for himself. And we start, we start to see that kind of stagnation when we look at the parallels between what's going on in Hyboria and what's going on now, right? Like this is why I'm drawing the made comparison, why I'm drawing the, the trans I'm painting like uh, the whole trans phenomenon as, as sort of this ritualistic initiatic process where these people are, are essentially like servicing the high priests of this weird modern cult and you can't do anything about it because everybody's involved in it. You know what I mean? Like your company supports it. You're because they have their own interests in maintaining their ESG and DEI scores so that they can compete in the marketplace with other companies who are doing the same thing. Like everybody has a stake in it in a way. Everybody knows somebody, you know, everybody has a gay cousin or a trans friend or former friend or whatever. Like there, everybody who is because of the way civilization requires so much in interdependence, everybody is compromised except Conan, right? Conan just comes in and he says, uh, I don't care. Stab. He's an outsider. And he's an outsider. It's the key. Right. This is the philosophy of nomadology or, or BAP's piratical philosophy. Not that BAP has a philosopher. It's a exhortation, but this is the whole idea that like you have to, Nick Land's outsideness that it has to be somebody or something from outside the normal liberal order that can cut through it because everything else gets captured by it. And this is also the effect of gynocracy. And this is the the way a gynocracy plays itself out. So you can take uh, you mentioned the the statue uh, that's like the statue of some goddess that's uh, supposed to venerate Ruth Bader Ginsburg that's at the, in the New York uh what it's in the New York on the top of the New York courthouse. Right. There I think there's two copies there's one two, of which yeah. is on the courthouse and one of which is like in a in a big park nearby. But it's Ishtar. You know what I mean? It's the Right, exactly. That's right. Exactly. That's just what it is. It's obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's uh mentioned in Black Colossus too. There's a the quote that just like struck me where he says the Kothians had long since abandoned the worship of Mitra forgetting the attributes of the universal Hyborian god. Ishtar was much to be feared, and all the gods of Koth. Kothian culture and religion had suffered from a subtle admixture of Shemite and Stygian strains. The simple ways of the Hyborians had become modified to a large extent by the sensual, luxurious, yet despotic habits of the East. And I think the East here is, you know, anything that's not the Occident. It, it would include, obviously, his parallels of the Middle East, like Shem or uh, North Africa, like Stygia. Yeah, so, listen, let me let me read. Yeah. Let me read. Sorry to jump in again, but let me read the paragraph preceding that, because you just read a quote that's in your essay. But mm -hmm. let's let's read the, the paragraph right above that. Yeah. Art, especially important. And I'm quoting I'm quoting Conan now. Art, especially important civic sculptural art, links the long ages and spiritual inches between our modern era and ancient Hyboria, forgotten but never dead. In civic art, we see the elevation of archaic goddesses without even the pretense of disguise. 
The statue of a horned and winged goddess in gold entitled Witness now stands triumphantly atop the New York City courthouse, with a larger, while a larger copy stands in nearby Madison Square Park. It is impossible to miss the parallels to Istar, whose cult practiced sexual, sexual rites with temple prostitutes and whose myth often focused on usurping the realms of other gods. In Howard's work, as in our own age of decaying civilization, Istar appears as Ishtar, largely unchanged in name and aspect. Thus, in the Black Colossus, we learn, and then you read that quote, and I'll let you come back in. Let me just make a quick observation here. I've been reading Avola a lot lately, and I've been watching uh, Asha Logos on YouTube, highly recommended. And Evola uh, talks a lot about gynocracy and what it looks like. And he talks about the Silver Age. The Silver Age replaces the the Golden Age. The Silver Age is ruled by priests, and and priestesses and women and it needs to be pointed out that in a gynocratic silver age in which the priests and the women are mediating the rituals and the rites of religion uh because prior to that in like ancient roman stuff these rituals were practiced by the patriarch of the family in the house and then they would the communal rites would be the festivals where everybody would gather together for festivals um then like with the Christian religion, it's 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 uh, it's put into the church and it's administered only by the priest. And Evola talks about this as like uh, a, a feminine aspect. It's a it's a feminine gynocratic way to administer it because it's no longer the patriarch of the family doing it. And you no longer uh, need patriarchy. It, it gets much more complicated than this. But the point I'm trying to make is that if you uh, take a look at civilizations in reality that played out this way, in which uh, the priestesses and the women and the priests administered society, and not the warriors, not the warlords, not the king or the emperor, who is, of course, the primary patriarch, right? Um, that that example you gave from Syria is a good example. The example I like to use, and I bring up Asha Logos because he's got a video on this, is uh, Justinian's reign in the Byzantine Empire. Uh, his wife, Theodora, had uh, lots and lots and lots of power. So she was helping administer the empire and she was helping run the court. And she arguably had more power than him. She she arguably superseded him uh, in administering the court and administering the empire. And under her, you know, reign, if you can call it a reign. You had court eunuchs. You had uh, you had women who were like in in the court of the emperor helping influence her decision. And you had things like these people, these powdered wrists, uh, you know, uh, court eunuchs who were not warriors, who were, you know, Belisarius, of course, was one of the greatest generals of all time. And he was like not ostracized, but he was like disenfranchised by these people. He was you know, given a triumph and all that stuff. But you can argue that they actually tried to kill Belisarius with some of these missions they sent him on mm-hmm. um, because he was too popular to assassinate. Uh, so some of the things these people got up to, these these eunuchs and all of them, would be to uh, basically plunder the wealth of the of the wealthy people in uh, in Byzantium. And they would have to resort to like mercenaries for their for their uh, warfare and things like that. And this was this is the corruption and the rot setting in. And now you transpose it onto today, where you have uh, people who are in charge of the military who've like never seen combat, 
they they're, they're they're literally saluting the pride flag. I mean, right. me and Conan are recording this during Pride Month. I'm probably going to be able to get it out before the end of the month. Um, what more of an argument, coupled with your observations about the Istar statue, do you need to show that we're living in a gynocracy uh, in which this cult, this this like sexually deviant cult, is like administering the empire? And uh, women are in charge and court eunuchs literally are in charge of this. And the men who are supposed to be like the patriarchs are like literally kneeling, bowing down and saluting this new God. Um, so go on. Yeah. And so I think that's that's kind of the cycle. I mean, you're you and Howard also uh, are familiar with like this idea of yuga cycles. Right. Of course. Blavatsky and the Theosophists talk about it. Others talk about it. Yeah, it's um, in it's in uh, Evola a lot too. In Evola, right? Evola talks about it famously, as did Rene Gonon. Um, and you know they have cycles within cycles, and and everybody argues about the number of years involved in the the Brahma day and all that kind of stuff. Which I, you know I don't really have much insight or opinion onto that, but I think you can see Howard modeling his kind of worldview on an idea of cyclical time like that, where there is always this chthonic undercurrent that's ready to pop up like mushrooms, right? The, the, the court eunuchs, the gynocracy, the, the human sacrifice, the corruptions that is defeated by the solar cult, you know, under the Aryan expansion that he's, he's focused on as the end of the Hyborian age, right? The, the Hyborian age is a high, age of high civilization in decay. When does it end? It ends with the expansion of the sons of Arius with the solar cult destroying the Chthonic, you know, lunar cult. Um, and you you have to transpose that to today, and you can see that that Chthonic cult reemerging out from under this like increasingly thin skin of solar civilization that's left over and is is quickly unraveling. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I can't speak to Evola's theories very well. And obviously as a good Catholic boy, I, uh, would, I, I would, you know, I'm, I'm poised to disagree with some of them, but at the same time, even within the Catholic church, there's a big argument about the inclusion of, um, female extraordinary ministers who are distributing the Eucharist at mass right? The, the Novus Ordo sort of like left caths are so gung-ho about including women in the church in all, every way that they can, right? They want women priests, of course. They want women deacons. They want women distributing extraordinary ministers. They call them, they just, they, it's so stupid. They just stand there and hand out the Eucharist for no reason other than they want the lines to move faster. But there's like a, a subtle, there's a subtle play going on here behind the scenes. And then, of course, altar girls, right, which is another kind of imposition that they are pushing for female inclusion and, and sort of um, institutional capture in the church. So, you know, whatever I might think about Evola's basic thesis with the transition from, um, you know, the, the patriarch being administering religious rights in his own house. To, yeah doing it in a church, whatever I might think about that. Certainly it's playing out <laughs> in further iterations that I find unacceptable. Now, um, 
now. This yeah. stuff is happening now, and the churches are spray painting the rainbow flags on their steps. But okay, so let me clarify real quick because I did. It sounds like I mischaracterized that uh, only because I gave it very, very brief reference. Let me just elaborate just for a moment what I mean. Sure. Uh, like I was talking about uh, Byzantium and, and Theodora and her court eunuchs uh, plundering the wealth of the aristocrats and plundering the the wealth of the noble people and the wealthy people in the city of Constantinople. Mm -hmm. The reason why that's important, the reason why I brought that up is because the function of an empire that is ruled by a warlord or or a, a, a martial man of ability, someone like Julius Caesar, who actually marched to war, uh, people like uh, Marcus Aurelius, who went on campaign in the field, they plunder their neighbors and they plunder their enemies and they expand beyond their borders because they're warlike people. This is a manly, patriarchal way to administer your society. A priest does not participate in... So, so, so the men, the patriarch of the family, who's administering the rights in the home is probably a soldier. If he's a citizen of Rome, mm -hmm. he's a soldier who's been on those campaigns, who took part in the actual manly warlike activity of uh, survival, conquer and expansion. And this is how wealth was brought to them. A, a Silver Age priestly and a, a, the Silver Age does have a, a yuga analysis that Evola elucidates, but I don't remember the name of it right now. I use the Silver Age It's because it's Western European and he takes it from Hesiod, who's a Greek uh, historian and lyric poet, uh, excuse me, epic poet. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I'm explaining this for the listener's benefit as much as yours. But uh, anyway, the, the women in the court eunuchs do not have this martial, you know, um, uh, ability. They don't have that mindset. They have a more feminist mind, uh, feminine, excuse me, mindset, uh, which is much more focused on like court drama and intrigue right as opposed to like expansion and warfare so they they can't they can't do that and 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 justinian tried he tried with belisarius and it, it failed so instead they have to plunder uh their own people they have to plunder their own you know empire uh and the byzantine the byzantine the Byzantines are famous for this, for for overtaxation of the middle class. They basically eradicated the middle class, you know, the ancient version, the ancient equivalent of the middle class through that because they weren't good at expansion. OK, this is what a decrepit, decayed, gynocratic society, uh, Magian civilization uh, acts like. This is not a, an Aryan. They're no longer like they're like off the track of the Aryan conquerors of the Romans. This is why they had to bring the Varangian guard in. You know who the Varangian guard is, I'm sure. They're, of course. Right. Um, so when I talk about like uh, silver age feminism, femin feminine priests and, and, and women, and I make the analogy to the Catholic church, I'm not saying that like women are running the church. I'm saying men who act like women because they're weak and they're not warriors and they right. can't fight right so instead of being the people who are leading society to expansion and this is this is very this is talked about in raw egg nationalist essay the village and the war band and we have an essay on my blog that you can go back and listen to where we talk about this in great detail because what he talks about in that essay 
is about how the priests and the bishops who administer uh, like remote villages in Europe in the Middle Ages, they don't turn the people there into fighting men that can like defend the village and go out and expand. Instead, they like manipulate them and look at them, look over them in a matriarchal way, looking over their shoulder and henpecking them to make sure that they're not sinning and that they're not uh, they're they're not like like breaking the rules of the church and they get involved into their affairs just like a woman would and they 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 try to administer the like the relationships that people have with each other um and they also uh use guilt to tax the hell out of them to bring money into the church because they don't have the strength and the martial ability that that but, the war, that the warriors have that's but now the women are running the church. Right. And we are in an extremely decayed state now that right. the women literally are running the church. And this but is what I'm saying. Howard foresaw all of this, you know, like this, that, that process and the mechanism of it is what he's writing about in the Conan stories. And that's why he's, he's a visionary. He's a visionary. Yeah. And I think to, to kind of like bring it back to the, the main theme of the, talk here is that my my whole argument is that you you have the proof of the pudding is in the eating right like you have to take serious notice of the fact that everybody knows who conan the barbarian is and look at why you can't just say it ha this is just a totally random happenstance that it was conan and not thongor or whoever else that or you know nobody at all that became famous howard saw something and he wrote it down really well and he sent it and it worked like we're here a hundred years later talking about it. And there's no, there's not necessarily any slowdown, right? They, they're talking about a new Conan television series. They're constantly talking about new movies. They did, they tried to do a new movie in like 2012 with Jason. Yeah. Mahola. Yeah. It was so, I'm so bad. Horrible, horrible. But there's, you know, there's the Conan Exiles video game that still runs and is still pretty well regarded. There's new um, new properties still coming out for it. What if they're going to fuck up the TV series? They probably will. But, you know, um, so so of course, the 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 equivalent to what I was talking about with Byzantium and the court eunuchs and, and the priests and the bishops administering the, the remote rural villages in medieval Europe in, Con in Howard is the wizards, of course. It's always a dark wizard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes there are there are dark wizards who have uneasy, um, you know, influence over or alliances with the fighting men of that country. Um, you know, I think there's a, I think it's in A Witch Shall Be Born that Conan kind of goes head to head with one of the generals of whatever, whatever nation that takes place in. I can't recall at the time. Uh, and, but th there's a respect there. Right. There is a I mean, Conan does kill him at the end. Yeah, always. <laughs> but always. But that's not a lack of respect in a way. I mean, I think the relationship is actually very touching because that that general um, initially captures and crucifies Conan, which I think is a really interesting kind of symbolic inclusion, given that this is a pre-Christian setting. Uh, well, but the Romans invented crucifixion. Right. The Romans invented crucifixion. But I think the the kind of like main what what you think of when you think right, of crucifixion. Right, right. Um 
I lost my train of thought. So I, the the general crucifies Conan. Conan manages to escape. He gets off the cross. I think he has help. Gets off the cross. Uh, I think it's a tree that he was crucified on. Ends up going back, fighting it out. Crucifies the general that crucified him, and leaves him there. And he says something like, "I got off. You know, I got off. I escaped because I'm built different. You were gonna. <laughs> you're gonna die." Because your spirit is not nailed to your spine like mine is. Like, you're compromised. You know what I mean? You made the deal with the wizard. Uh, you're over-civilized. You're not going to make it. And that's presumably what happens. Um, and I think that's I think that's really important. It's really kind of like a grace note that underscores the, the central theme of the work here, which is that, that outsideness element that you're talking about. That, yeah. And it goes to what Howard's kind of prescription is for how to act in the face of a world that is rapidly deteriorating into Catholic uh, cults, uh, which is, of course, our world, right? There's, um, I think, a famous, there's a famous moment in one of the stories where somebody sets an ambush for Conan and you know rocks start tumbling down a hill he realizes what's happening figures on horseback appear at the top of the hill ready to ambush him and he says you know people are like what do we do and he says fucking charge at him you know like <laughs> right into it and he's right like that's the only you know maybe you die but you definitely die if you don't right that's the only way to that that immediate violence of action um ex coupled with the acceptance of possible death no fear in the face of it. That's the, that's Howard's prescription, right? He's, you know, don't be stupid. Like, don't be like, there are many times where Coda just says, Oh, this is a bad bet. Um, but in that, in the case where fear is what will freeze you and definitely kill you, you, the, the prescription is kind of a, a violence of action that disregards those potential compromise relationships or deals that could be made with wizards right like you, you in there's never a good deal to be made with a wizard and maybe there are here and there in the conan stories i can't there, there's a good there's one good wizard i can think of in uh, yeah in the hour people, of the dragon i think it is the, the people of the black circle too yeah the, the brother of the woman that he's rescuing helps him break into the wizard's uh temple in the mountains and then he gives him a magic belt so that as he's dying mm. he gives him a magic belt so that he can like ward off some of the curses in inside the fortress yeah I mean, but that, uh, he, he dies the bell. but in general it's like those it's like being you know overvaluing those compromise relationships and trying to play to like a, a a less of a loss situation you know what i mean like trying to scrabble for a little bit more life versus being willing to face and accept that death uh that that is the real sin that's presented in terms of like you know how would conan be wrong you know conan conan is not typically presented as wrong in the stories in terms of like his moral posture uh, he's he's there to show you how to navigate successfully navigate a 
a decaying age, yeah. right? A collapsing age. It's not necessarily like it doesn't necessarily speak to the the religious transcendence or the the I don't I don't know if religious is the right word, but the transcendence of the flaws of that age. Like, can you single handedly reverse it? Can you can you totally rise above it? Who knows, right? That's that's a question that I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're the Nietzsche expert, but I think that he struggled yeah. with. He yes, I'm actually currently rereading the Birth of Tragedy, and it's like you're speaking directly to the book because he says that the Dionysic forces, which you're you're using the word chthonic, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Apollonian forces, which is like the masculine, if we're right. if we're going to go back to what I was talking about with Avola, um, sort of establish civilization in the face of nature and these natural chaotic forces that uh, will kind of keep you stuck in grass huts the metaphorical grass hut. Uh, But then once you establish that, you have to do, it takes energy. It takes conscious energy to keep it sustained. Because as you said, the dark chthonic or Dionysic forces are always under the surface trying to bubble up. And Nietzsche argues in The Birth of Tragedy and elsewhere that... uh, it was it was kind of the tidal wave of the of the Dionysic forces were overwhelming the uh, Athenians, and they arrested it. They arrested the 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 wave with uh, by inventing Attic tragedy. That's and he that's what this whole book is about. The argument that the Apollonian was preserved in Greek tragedy, and that's why he calls it uh, the birth of tragedy. Tragedy was birthed by the Athenians to arrest the onslaught of the. The, the Dionysic forces. Interesting. Uh, the Dionysic forces are this gynocracy that I'm talking about because the Dionysic forces uh, operate better under the administration of a wizard or of a priest or uh, of women. Um, intrigue, duplicity, moralizing, henpecking, things like that. Uh, there's an episode uh, that I have called uh, the Aquarian Kali Yuga where we talk about... Um, so so what Howard is saying, right? And why I was saying like an earlier type of man is that and Nietzsche talked this is what Nietzsche talks about the blonde beast. They're the moral authority because when they see decrepit priests practicing these practices, they don't moralize about it. They don't hesitate. They just kill them. They just stop it. And this there's is the argument there's a classic beat in um in rogues in the house where conan ends the story i think he just whips a stool at the at the <laughs> the, the the bureaucrat the eunuch the court eunuch just he just fucking whips a stool at his head and breaks his neck yeah and that's that that's that you know it's like anticlimactic in a way in a no, very funny way no deliberation or rationalization but you talk about this uh with you know there's an argument to be made i know there's counters to this but what the what Cortez did with the Aztecs, um, and Daryl Cooper on my show said that when the Aryans came into Europe, and when they came into India, what they found were a decrepit civilization in India, and a an uh, 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 agricultural cult in Europe, who were doing all of these practices of cannibalism and flaying people alive and other things like that which are all mm-hmm. talked about in the Golden Bough. The whole reason why the Golden Bough resonates is because people saw that as a way to understand 
the origins of European civilization before the Aryans came. And the argument is that uh, the people that the Aryans conquered were people who had like devolved into these uh, 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 agricultural cults and these goddess cults in which mm -hmm. these practices were done, uh, which is, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about the Aztecs and Cortez at all, but that's one of the arguments. Yeah, uh, I'm happy to. I, I It's a really interesting subject to me. And I think a lot of people miss a lot of the interest in it just because they don't kind of get into the history and they're more they're more on one side or other of the meme the meme well, we're war. we're suffering from the howard zinification of history in america right, right? the howard right. zinn argument is the conquistadors were cruel brutal savages who butchered those people for no reason right and then the other side the, the kind of reactionary the limited reactionary argument is that uh you know the aztecs were just like total losers without virtue and they got rolled over by Cortez easily it's Cortez and his like 400 Spaniards or whatever and and I think that's also kind of a misrepresentation of the facts where the Aztecs start out start out as nomadic pastoralist warrior culture that sweeps into Mexico from the deserts in the north right and when you're thinking about it like that has a certain parallel virtue to what we're talking about here but they degrade, right? They degrade over the course of the foundation of their empire and uh, become ruled by their priestly class in a lot of ways. And and that gets toppled. That's what gets toppled by, uh, by Cortez. In fact, with a lot of help from dissatisfied yeah, other right, exactly. local tribes. Yes. Because... You know, the Aztecs were set up in this kind of triple alliance between three prominent cities in the Valley of Mexico, and they ruled with they ruled over like lots of Mexican substrate peoples without really kind of building an administrative empire in the way that we would think about it today. Like all they did was more or less exact tribute from conquered people and get sent tribute, you know, in the form of goods, but also in the form of human sacrifices. So a lot of these people were sending, you know, <laughs> I think that some of the totals that I've seen at estimates, you know, 60 to 100,000 people sacrificed a year in Tenochtitlan. That's a lot of people, you know, yeah. that's a big burden on a tributary group that's sending some large number of their own people to be sacrificed annually. They would have, of course, every <laughs> sort of incentive to to use Cortez as a wedge instrument. Cortez, of course, has his own plans, Spanish backing, all of that plays out as it does. But you can see that there's there's a lot of more of a complex kind of historical milieu where this fall of the Aztec Empire takes place. And a lot of it is, like you're saying, following these patterns. The the agricultural cult, very strong. I think Helios, the accountant Helios on Twitter. Yeah, has he's about also the, been on this show. Right. The corn cult and um that that particular deity governing you know the rains that drove these corn crops was i think tlaylock who was who was the one that doing the nastiest child sacrifices yes demanding those things so um yeah i mean you know obviously my, i think my position is pretty clear i don't think cortez did anything particularly wrong i think people miss this but you can you can argue that francisco pizarro who was instrumental in the toppling of the inca empire Probably, you know, maybe went overboard in some circumstances, but Cortez was like very, very reasonable and fair given, you know, given the circumstances, given 
everything playing out at the time. I don't, I don't really have anything bad to say about the guy. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's all there. And I think it's all there in Howard, because like I said, in red nails, Howard is directly setting us in, I can't remember the name of the city, but when you see it, it's like obviously Aztec. Um, and he's talking about that, that Magian corruption that resulted in the fall of that city, right? There's nobody left in that city. There's like three wizards and their, and their thralls left in that city. And they eventually come into Conan or conflict with Conan who resolves the conflict, let's say. Um, but you see that play out, right? That's, that's essentially the Cortez story playing out in red nails. Yeah, but that's not one of the ones I've read. Um, yeah, I like that story you said about uh, where they the boulders were being hurled down the mountain, and Conan says to charge into them. This is that's a great exemplary of one of the points I was trying to make again about outsideness or the nomadologist, the 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 guy from outside the liberal order or outside civilization is what it takes to win, and also about how he's a representative or a throwback to the type of man that was sort of going under and disappearing in Howard's time or had maybe had just disappeared like the, the frontiersman and the cowboy and all that. Um, there's this great book called Oikophobia that I've been wanting to talk about, but he compares and contrasts the way people handle problems and the way people look at themselves, people as in a culture um, when they're just getting started and when they're uh, far advanced and oikophobia is like hatred of the homeland. Mm -hmm. And he says that a lot of these problems that we're talking about that I characterize as gynocratic and you're talking about these cults. He says a lot of this is uh, hatred of the homeland and boredom. And they know, you know on some level that they're tearing civilization down because they despise it. And uh, it's like a suicide cult, basically. Right. And one of the things he says, though, is that he talks about the charge at Marathon and he talks about the, the Battle of the 300, the Spartans at Thermopylae. And he says that only a young society of men who are in charge, who are the warriors themselves, right? Because that is, of course, how Roman and Greek democracy got started. It was the people actually fighting these wars who were also the politicians, which we could really use a dose of that now. He said that only a people like that would charge down the beach at Marathon at the Persians or decide to to have 300 of them to guard the pass at Thermopylae because he said that it's crazy to do that. And it's like arguably stupid because a, a much more advanced civilization might stand there and look at the opposing army and start to do calculations and say, OK, they have this many archers. They have this many spearmen. They have this many troops in reserve. And we have this many. And this is our outfit. And this is our equipment. And this is theirs. And these are our tactics. And these are theirs. Let's put out a map and let's decide the tr these troops should go here and those troops should go there. And if they even survive that deliberation process, um, they may decide, well, we are clearly outnumbered. And we need to retreat or we need to compromise. And his point is like, they didn't do any of that shit. They just charged down the fucking beach and beat their asses. <laughs> and, and, and the guy, and the guys at, at Thermopylae said, well, we're all going to die, but we have to do this anyway. And we're going to beat them. Yeah. And, and that's, we talked about something like this in Tolkien in our first conversation, because that's, that's why, 
that's why Frodo is right and Bilbo is right to not kill Gollum, right? Like, the, uh, yeah. you should kill Gollum. Like, if you do all the math, right? the right decision is to kill Gollum. Uh, but they don't. And, you know, obviously Token is transposing this into a kind of like Catholic virtue system where he's showing mercy and it's by that mercy, the, the divine new catastrophe, the good catastrophe is, is enabled, uh, which, which does occur also in various like military settings in Tolkien, for example, at Helm's Deep with Gandalf. And, and I think in the book, it's Urkenbrand arriving at dawn on the fifth day, right. To, and they, they charge out for their kind of last stand and, and Gandalf arrives and saves the day and so forth. So, so it, it's that almost like dogged disregard for the your own life calculations and yeah. yeah, and your own life and seeking to like save your own life above everything else. That is what is going to save you in these morally critical, uh, eternal civilization-defining moments. And that's what Conan represents. And right, Howard is doing it conscientiously. Yeah, I think Howard. I think Howard is like fully aware of what he's doing here. I think it's it's almost, and that's what makes it really remarkable to me. Like it, when you read it, once you've internalized all of the influences and, and background references that he's drawing on and incorporating into these like really terse. I think I made this point in the essay. He only writes about three hundred and sixty thousand total words of. Yeah. Conan the Barbarian, which is to put it in context, that's like a novel that was published posthumously and something like 30 stories of varying lengths, short stories of varying lengths. But th 360,000 words is like one big fantasy novel today. Like that's yeah. like one, you know, a couple, like one of the big Game of Thrones novels. That's it. That's the whole Conan thing. And you don't have to read all of them. Right. That's all of them. That's all the weird fragments that nobody reads, like Veil of Lost Women or even Frost Giant's Daughter. That's a kind of a classic, but it's a fragment. Like it's not a it's not it's, a full. It's so good. <laughs> but if you just read kind of the hits, like if you're just reading Scarlet Citadel, Red Nails, Tower of the Elephant, Witch Shall Be Born, Black Colossus, Queen of the Black Coast. Well, and the people of the Black Circle is people probably of the, Black Circle, yeah. the best story. Um even like Iron Shadows in the Moon, some of those Zuthal of the Dusk I mentioned before. If you if you're just reading the hits, right, like the the top ten or fifteen Conan stories, you get all this. There's nothing missing, right? You could read like one or two stories and get all of it. I think, which is to me like incredible, really remarkable how how much is implicated by these relatively short stories that. Are, are just balanced so incredibly well they're constructed so incredibly well to say nothing of, of the prose or the repetitiveness of of you know the plot beats that he includes to structure the stories and it's it's like i think directly connected to the success of the character over time and his entrance into the cultural mythos like the conan character symbolizes all of this in one person, right? When you say Conan the Barbarian, this whole conversation, this is what you mean. You're talking about the decay of civilization. You're talking about the conflict between, um, you know, the gynocracy, the the Dionysian forces, the Chthonic cults with the, the solar masculine. You're talking about that entire conflict. You're implicating all of it, the yugic cycles of time, 
and how the individual should act in the face of all that, right? Yeah. All of that gets encoded just into the character in the way that, you know, the, the kind of British identity gets encoded into King Arthur or or Robin Hood as these cultural mythic figures, or even yes. Hengist and Horsa. Although some people say Hengist and Horsa are real. I, I'm sympathetic to that. I don't know. I don't, it's not like in my field of study. Um, but you know what I mean? Like cultural mythic heroes. And he you're created, saying he created Con- and Conan is quintessentially American. He's yes, he's the American. He's a, he's one of the, I think one of the, the quintessentially American, American born cultural mythic heroes that has been created since like the, the origin of the American nation. Um, and so uh, like to me, when you, when you phrase it in those terms, it's hard for me to see how you wouldn't consider Howard, like an important American writer, right? How you wouldn't want to expend the effort to like study that or treat him as, you know, on par with at least Lovecraft and, and some of those other popular writers who are not working in necessarily the academic tradition, but you know, historically that's not been a qualifier for something entering the sort of canon of important cultural works. Like yeah. it doesn't have to come from an MFA. Program. Well, and you also, you know, I mentioned Poe as well. You don't have, mm-hmm. you don't have French intellectuals talking about Robert E. Howard and Conan, but uh, I, I have to get going, but yeah, the French, the French are the ones who elevated Conan, excuse me, Lovecraft and Poe, like, to the level beyond pulp. Well, I have I have to, to, you have to give some credit to the British too. Some the uh, in the early days, some of the British were very important in republishing Conan and bringing Conan to a kind of broader cultural awareness. So I, I didn't know that. Just, yeah, that's in U.S. I guess that's in the U, the United States DNA. So it makes a certain amount of sense. But yeah, I know you have to get going. So I appreciate the time and we'll yeah, do it again. and and we covered uh, a lot more than I. I, I, I feared we wouldn't be able to do both the contents of the story as well as the cultural implications and, and Howard himself, the man. So I'm glad we did that, but you're welcome back anytime. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're just a, a fan favorite. So I, you're welcome here anytime. Well, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll get back in the, uh, in the take minds. I'll invent some new theory yeah. about Conan and have something new and interesting to say, and I'll come back on and talk about it. I mean, I would even do a part two of this if you come up with, I would do a part two regardless, but if you came up with a new novel insight or expand this, that would be awesome for another episode. Yeah, for sure. I, we'll, awesome, we'll plan man. on, we'll plan on doing something soon. I want to, it's always a lot of fun for me. Um, Love I it. just like, I hate to waste people's time, you know, so I don't want to come on and like talk about stuff that everybody's already said before. So I like to, I like to, I like to time it. So I have something cool to say, but yeah. Well, you're great at that. And I really think in both of these instances now, we've we've said things people don't... I mean, a lot of people know what we said about Howard and like Nietzsche and the Theosophists, but I don't know if the broader public is aware of it. Yeah, definitely. All right, man. Until next time. All right, thanks again. Talk to you soon. All right, brother.